Today's program could be called Light and Darkness. In a way, it's about the whole question about how you portray or convey a sense of light or its absence in music. And the emphasis in the first piece we're going to hear today is very much on the dark side. That's the opening of the tone poem, The Swan of Tuonello, by the Finnish composer Jean Sibelius. Originally, it was composed in 1893. Now, I don't know about you, but that first chord, which we heard right down there in the cellos and basses, for me, is almost the epitome of darkness in music. It's a wonderful, rich, black sound, heavy, dense, and opaque. Yes, that's a pretty dark sound, isn't it? <laughs> For Finns, like Sibelius, and indeed like our conductor today, Petri Sakari, you could say that extremes of light and darkness are not just part of the culture, but almost part of the national character. After all, this is a country right up in the north of Europe, where you hardly see the sun for half a year, and then in summer it hardly seems to set. It's an extraordinary thing. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the midnight sun, but it is, for those not used to it, it's a quite disconcerting experience. And this can have an effect, a profound effect, on the mood of people who live in far northern latitudes. There's a condition which is now known as SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, which is where the emotions react very strongly to the change of light and dark with the passage of the seasons. And it's no surprise to learn there are a lot of people in Finland who have this condition and there's a good deal of evidence that Sibelius himself was one of them. But the music we heard at the top isn't just dark. It also has a very strong emotional character associated with it, too. I think most viewers would agree, listening to that, that it's pretty melancholy music, particularly the sound of that lamenting cor anglais, the solo cor anglais that we just heard there, beautifully played by our player, Gillian Callow. And the subject of the tone poem of the Swan of Tuonela is itself a very melancholy subject. Tuonela is the land of the dead. It's the Hades of Finnish mythology. And it's surrounded, like the classical Hades, by a huge river, a black river, on which the Swan of Tuonela swims, constantly singing. Well, here, clearly, the sound of the swan singing is identified by Sibelius with the cor anglais. It is the most melancholy voice of the orchestra, and it leads the work almost right the way through. 
This is a very majestic work in some ways, but it's also a lament. There's clearly a sense of loss here. We are talking about the land of the dead and of lament for the dead souls who have passed to the other side of the river and therefore beyond rescue. Well, it'll be no surprise to those of you today who know your Wagner to learn that Sibelius, as a young man, was very much impressed by Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, and particularly, it seems, by the sound of the shepherds melancholy piping at the beginning of Act Three, which is taken by a corps anglais. It's one of the earliest great extensive solos for the corps anglais and music. And in the opera, at the beginning of Act Three, we hear the shepherds piping against the desolate sound of the rise and fall of the sea, endless in the background. But I think there's another interesting Wagner connection going on here, because a swan, as an image, is very prominent in Wagner's opera Lohengrin. It's a supernatural swan who carries the hero down the river to the medieval dukedom of Brabant, and at the end of the opera conveys him away, tragically. So there's an idea of a swan swimming on a big river, and a swan is a messenger in some way, like the swan of Tuonella. But Lohengrin also begins with a magnificent depiction of light, the pure, ethereal, pulsating light that surrounds the Holy Grail. And how Wagner conveys this in this music is quite magical. What he has is basically, on the page, it can look incredibly simple. You have just a series of A major chords overlapping on full violins, on four solo violins playing icy harmonics, and four woodwind instruments. And these chords overlap each other, but as they do so, Wagner conveys this wonderful sense of light ebbing and glowing and pulsating. Sounds like this.
Now, what Sibelius does at the beginning of the Swan of Tuonella is to take that sound and utterly transforming it, while in one sense keeping it exactly as it is in the Wagnerian original. Because what happens at the beginning of the Swan of Tuonella is that you also have chords of A. Wagner has chords of A major there, overlapping. What Sibelius does is turn them into chords of A minor. They're all on the strings now, overlapping chords, exactly as in the Wagner, but now they're muted, which gives it a darker sound. And as we heard at the beginning of the program, he begins with the very deepest sound in the orchestra, the double basses and the cellos. So the overlapping chords start in the darkest part of the orchestra, in the minor, and carry on up to the treble. So it's a sound that clearly derives from the Wagner, but almost conveys the exact opposite in terms of meaning, where Wagner has you kind of struck with awe at the purity of this brilliant light around the grail. What strikes you with Sibelius's overlapping chords is just how dark and somber they seem. When you hear those chords after the Wagner, the connection's pretty clear. And yet it's very striking how very few people, it seems, have listened to that music in the Sibelius without saying, ah, yes, Wagner. Because what Sibelius does with Wagner's original is transform it so creatively that it sounds like something else entirely. Now, there were many composers writing in the shadow of Wagner in the 1890s when Sibelius wrote the Swan of Tuonella. But I think that Sibelius is one of the most imaginative and creative responses to the tremendous influence of Wagner that there is. This taking of a Wagnerian sound symbol, and as it were, standing it's not just the sound, but the meaning entirely on its head, so that whereas Wagner says light, the Sibelius says darkness. But there's also another aspect of Sibelius's response to Wagner, which I think is very interesting. When history books, when the standard history books talk about Wagnerian influences, and when they talk about the innovative aspects of Wagner, they almost always single out the intense chromaticism of some of Wagner's music. And they point, for instance, to Tristan and Isolde. And they say, look, you can, there are whole pages of this score where you can hardly sense what key you're in. We're only just one step short of Schoenberg and the step in the 20th century into complete atonality. That's very typical of Tristan, you might say. And it does sometimes seem, if you listen to Tristan, that the next logical step from this is Schoenberg and complete atonality. But in Wagner, just as we've heard at the beginning of Lohengrin, there are also long passages of completely pure tonality. In fact, I can't think of another composer in the 19th century who used the basic common chords, the basic tonal chords, in as pure and simple form as Wagner did quite so radically. Think of the beginning, if you know it, to The Ring, the first opera, Das Rheingold. There's one chord, E-flat major, that's basically all there is for nearly five minutes. There's no other 19th century composer who would have dared do that. And yet it seems so incredibly powerful and new too, just as new in a totally different way from the music of Tristan. 
And it seems to me there that what Wagner is doing is pointing in a completely different direction from Schoenberg. He's looking to something much more close to our time and the rediscovery of basic tonal music that there has been in minimalism, if anything. Wagner may have liberated chromaticism, but he also rediscovered the purity of the basic tonal chords. And in that, I'd say that Sibelius was his true follower. I like a remark that Vaughan Williams once made about Sibelius. Vaughan Williams is a great admirer of Sibelius. And he said that Sibelius could make the chord of C major sound stranger than the maddest concoctions of the continental modernists. Well, what about this extraordinary chord that comes a little bit later in the Swan of Tuonella? I wonder if Vaughan Williams was thinking of sounds like that when he devised his Talis Fantasia with those beautiful, widely spaced ethereal string chords there. That was just a chord of D minor. That's all it was. But that extraordinary wide spacing of it throughout the string orchestra, right from the top to the bottom of the orchestral range, gives it a sense of extraordinary newness. And I'm certain that Wagner would have approved of that, possibly still more than he might have approved of some of Schoenberg's atonal explorations. Certainly, that's an example of how Sibelius represents, if you like, a different continuation from Wagner. But there's much more to this kind of study of darkness element in the Swan of Tuonella. That cor anglais line builds to a climax, and then we have a much more somber woodwind sound, the bass clarinet, which initiates a very strange chord, indeed of C major, with rippling harp and horn calls echoing the cor anglais and the bass clarinet. If you listen to the horn calls, first of all, they're an open sound. The horn plays an open sound, which is quite bright. Then you hear the same horn calls muted. And it's, it's, it's as though for a moment you get a glimmer of sun through the clouds, just a glimmer, and then the shadows return. You can actually hear the process of darkening happening in the music. light for a moment, and then darkness. It has an interesting effect in context. There's a, there's a wonderful line of T.S. Eliot's where he talks about darkness declaring the glory of light. 
But in this case, that brief glimmer of light seems to do exactly the opposite. That light heightens the sense of the darkness of the opening of music as we return to it in that passage and the melancholy of the Cor Anglais solo. Well, there are some still more somber sounds to follow in the Swan of Tuonella. First of all, actually, it's interesting to point out the constitution of the orchestra in this piece, because although we have the full orchestra in front of us here, Sibelius is quite selective in the instruments he uses for the Swan of Tuonella. There are no flutes, no trumpets, only a bass clarinet, and all of, it seems almost the bright instruments in the orchestra have been deliberately banished from the ensemble. And now, at this point, just a little later than that passage we heard, we have another A minor chord, as at the beginning of the piece. But this time it's wind colors. The bass clarinet, bassoons, horns, trombones, a quiet bass drum roll, and timpani playing chords, just A and C. All very quiet, pianissimo, PPP. And that forms the background to an elegant threnody. It's got to be a threnody, a song for the dead on the strings. But it is a wonderfully dark sound. If you thought that opening double bass chord of A minor was opaque, this is even more so. So Elias now makes even more extraordinary noises with just that basic chord of A minor. The timps carry on playing their two notes, A and C. But we have deep bell-like sounds from the harp. And also, what the strings are doing is quite interesting here, because Sibelius asked them to turn their bows round, or at least some of them to do this, and play the strings with the wood part of the bow, rather than the hairs. It makes a very strange sound. It's worth reminding yourself at this point, as you listen to this music, that this is 1893, a time when modern music was Tchaikovsky's Pathétique, and the extraordinary revolutions of Debussy's L'Après-Midi d'un Fun were still a year away. So this is really extraordinarily modern, forward-looking music for its time, but achieved, again, with such basic musical elements. In this case, just a simple chord of A minor, imaginatively brilliantly scored.
was extraordinary for me sitting just a couple of feet in front of the orchestra as they're making that sound because it really is an incredibly powerful, intense, quiet sound. It's making the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end listening to that. But this isn't just a collection of extraordinary sounds or rediscoveries of basic tonal ingredients or, like, or anything like that. It's also a great romantic tone poem, a mood picture, a description of this image of this extraordinary black river and the swan, the majestic swan, swimming backwards and forwards on the water, endlessly swimming and singing. It's no story in a way. It's a piece that doesn't move. It doesn't travel anywhere. It's a piece, as it were, that deals with the eternal. Well, we are talking about the land of the underworld here. And yet, in its timelessness, it does paint an extraordinarily vivid musical picture, I think, of darkness, of melancholy, and the sound of that swan singing. So let's hear now the complete Swan of Tuonella by Sibelius. It's played for us by the BBC Philharmonic, led today by Ben Holland, conducted by Petri Sakari, and the solo corps anglais player is Gillian Callow. Now, before we go on the journey at his night ride and sunrise, here's an opportunity for you ask, to ask some questions, or if there's any comments any of you would like to make about what we've just heard or some of the things that have been brought up. If you have, please put your hand up, and our person with the microphone will pass amongst you. Is anybody anything? Yes, we've got a gentleman over here. There, there was a section towards the end, which you brought out in the introduction, where, where under the A minor chord, there was the tune, but which was interesting was it was played by all the strings, except for the double basses. And there was an amazing richness of sound that came up at that time with, with respect to the violins, much richer than just the violins playing on their own. Is this something which uh, Sibelius does more than once in this uh, overture? Is it part of his technique? Oh, yes, it most certainly is. I mean, there are many passages in Sibelius's symphonies and tone poems where you get that kind of massed string sound, almost like one voice taking in almost the entire string section. And interestingly enough, the other day, I was having a look at a little organ piece that he wrote late in his life, uh, which it turns out maybe, maybe, uh, uh, one of the movements of the Eighth Symphony that he's said to have finished and then destroyed. And there was one passage looking at it where... We were, everyone looking at the score just said, strings. And it was exactly that kind of sound you were describing. It, was, it leapt off the page, even in an organ part, that immediately that kind of sound came to mind. So Bayless is one of those composers who has an utterly distinctive sound world. I think you, you hear a few bars, it couldn't be anybody else. There are all sorts of little fingerprints that he, that he has at his own. And yet, you know, as we saw with that Lohengrin thing, sometimes he achieved these uniquely Sibelius sounds by taking someone else's sound and doing something radical and clever with it. But no, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very, very typical Sibelius sound. You know, in fact, we'll hear some more of it, I think, later on in Night Ride and Sunrise. So, yes, definitely. Uh, yes, question over here. I was intrigued by the reversal of the bow for the violinists. Could you tell us, A, is that... Uh, a unique uh, action, and secondly, how do they know how to do it? <laughs> uh, is there a uh, notation for it? As with many things in music, Berlioz got there first. Um, if you look at Berlioz's extraordinary Symphonie Fantastique, which was written in 1830, and sometimes you just have to remind yourself that it was written as early as 1830, there is a passage like that in the finale where Berlioz asks the string players to tap 
the strings with the back of their bows. Um, but it's not a tremolando like Sibelius uses there. As far as I'm aware, that's the first time uh, anyone has asked the players to move backwards and forwards across the bow, rapidly across the string like that with the bow. There isn't a, a special marking for it, but there is an Italian instruction which is col legno, which means with the wood, played with the wood on the back of the bow. I remember when I was an appalling cellist myself being taught how to do it. And um, the sound that came out when I tried it was, was extraordinary. So it's obviously something you do have to learn. But um, I'm, uh, that's probably something maybe for a, a member of the orchestra to answer rather than me. But no, I, I think that's the first example in music of a composer asking the strings to do it as a tremolo effect like that. So that is possibly an extraordinary first in music, certainly in 1893. There have been examples since then. Yeah. Anybody else anything they'd like to ask? Yes, there's a question over here. That's not in any score, that sound effect, as I know of. <laughs> I was reflecting upon the, uh, the effect of the anglais being within the orchestra uh, as a solo instrument, as opposed to where it would be if it were a, a concerto. Yes, that's a very interesting point. Actually, we were, we were wondering before the program about how many examples there were of solo anglais works with orchestra before this piece. And the only example we could come up with of a piece for Coronglay and orchestra before the Sibelius was Donizetti's Concertino, which is a very different kind of work, and which, as you said, requires the soloist to stand right at the front of the orchestra. But the soloist being in the orchestra like that does give it very much that distinctive quality that's so much a part of this piece that the swan is in there on the river, not in the spotlight, and surrounded by these misty, dark harmonies. So it's a different quality of sound. And I wonder if that's because Sibelius had encountered the extraordinary use of the cor anglais in the opera house in Wagner's Tristan and heard the whole cor anglais coming from off stage, as it were, in the distance. And maybe that sound had stayed in his mind. But if so, he translated it into something completely different in this piece. And um, it's not only very hard to think of a, an example of a work for cor anglais and orchestra like this before Sibelius, it's also rather hard to think of an orchestral work since then that uses the cor anglais so much but as a part of the orchestra like that. So it really is a, a unique feature. Yeah, part of the atmosphere, the sound world of the piece. Anybody else, anything they'd like to ask? Oh, yes. Given the fact that when the piece was written, uh, Finland was part of the Russian Empire, how much do you think that the entire piece is a kind of a lament for the state of the nation? Oh, that's a very interesting <laughs> question. <coughs> as... as uh, <laughs> As investigations into the earlier, stranger, less known parts of Sibelius's output, it's a huge output has started to be known, we began to discover just how important politically his music at this stage of his career was in the life of Finland, and in particularly Finland's drive towards independence from Russia. Um, it caused quite interesting agonies in a way for Sibelius because he was hugely impressed with Tchaikovsky's music. And in fact, at the time he wrote the first symphony, he said, there's so much about Tchaikovsky that's the same as me, and there are sounds in his own music at that stage which definitely do owe something to Tchaikovsky. And he made a very conscious, deliberate effort to move away from Tchaikovsky, just as he did from Wagner earlier in his career. There's a lot about his nationalism, which involves sort of purging himself of, 
of other elements, and other, other national elements in his music. But I, I don't know whether there are any coded messages in the Swan of Tuonela, as there sometimes are in Shostakovich's music. But um, certainly when you turn to a work like the First or Second Symphony, there you can find that there are messages that may have political overtones connected with works that he wrote for special occasions. Apparently there was a, a, a big uh, fashion at the time for historical pageants. And this was one place where this, the Tsarist censorship was not quite as strict as it was in other respects. And so you could get away with an awful lot in kind of disguised form in historical pageants. And there are references in the First and Second Symphonies to some of the works that Sibelius wrote for these historical pageant pieces. But in this, I think he was just going with the extraordinary dreamlike atmosphere. Though, of course, this use of a national image, such an important national image as, as the image of Tuonela, the land of the dead, not in Christian mythology, but in specifically Finnish Nordic national mythology. That's an important statement, too. So up to that point, certainly, I think you have a point, yes. Anybody else, anything they'd like to ask at this stage? Just gentlemen over here. Could any of these dark tones, you, you find in quite a bit of uh, uh, Sibelius's music, like his fourth, um, darkish tones. Uh, of course, you mentioned about depression because of... Uh, long days in winter, etc. Yes. Of course, Sibelius had a drink problem as well, didn't he? <laughs> Sibelius had a corker of a drink problem. Yeah. I think he must have been one of the most amazing drinkers in the history of comp composition. Yeah. So um, I, I heard the other this... day that, 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 that the violin concerto, the slow movement of the violin concerto was mostly composed during a three-day hangover. So mm. what he must have been drinking before that, God only knows. That's <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> you were saying. Yeah, so I, I wondered whether this was anything to do with, it, with his style of music. Well, alcohol certainly doesn't help if you have a melancholic temperament. And no. um, interestingly, Sibelius kept dial diaries, and his diaries are fascinating. And about the time he wrote the Fourth Symphony, which you just mentioned, which is his darkest symphony in many ways, um, he just had an operation to remove a tumor from his throat, which can't have been a very pleasant experience in 1908. And um, it was touch and go as to whether or not he was going to survive. Well, he did, actually, for another nearly 45 years. But uh, he had to come off the alcohol for two years, and his diaries suggest that this was... I think six years. Six years, was it? Yes. <laughs> oh, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it. Certainly, he was banned alcohol for quite a while, and his diaries suggest it was absolute torture for him. You know, what am I going to do without this, this major prop in my life? So... So either drink or its absence, yes, you could say, was a major determining feature on the character of some of Sibelius's works, yes. Well, thanks for that question, because in a way that, that has a direct reference, I think, to the piece we're going to hear next, uh, Night Ride and Sunrise, which Sibelius wrote in 1907, just before he had that operation for throat cancer. Um, as it turned out, as I said, he survived for a remarkably long time, but it was a testing time for him in a lot of ways. And um, it's quite extraordinary that the that night ride and sunrise turns out to be so little known today. I think a lot of, well, most of you, I imagine, will have heard of the Swan of Tuonela if you haven't actually heard it. Yes, a lot of nods coming from you there. But we found today when the orchestra tried this out that most of them didn't know this piece either. And it's, it's not an easy piece to play. It's scored for a much bigger, richer orchestra than the Swan of Tuonela and has just as many extraordinary sounds. And again, this element of light contrasting with darkness is crucial to the story or the emotional mood of the piece. 
But now there's one big difference between this and the Swan of Tuonella, and that is that this piece, whereas the Swan of Tuonella is static in a way, it floats backwards and forwards, rather like the swan swimming on the river. Night Ride and Sunrise is about a journey, and it's not just a journey geographically, but an emotional journey too. A few years before his death, Sibelius told his secretary, his amanuensis, how he'd once taken a horse-driven sleigh ride to Helsinki, just towards the end of winter, just when the sun was beginning to return. And not long before he arrived in the city, he experienced one of those incredible, spectacular slow-motion sunrises that you get in northern latitudes, almost like a kind of vast slow-motion firework display. And he describes it like this. He says, the whole heavens were a sea of colors that shifted and flowed, producing the most inspiring sight until it all ended in a growing light. Well, that description definitely found its way into the latter stages of Night Ride and Sunrise, the part of the piece that deals with sunrise. But first of all, we have this nocturnal journey. And because it's a journey, I think it makes sense now to follow this piece chronologically. We'll go through the story, as it were, stage by stage with the orchestra. It begins, as you might expect, at the beginning of the sleigh ride, with huge cries from the brass and tinkling, rattling of percussion. You could imagine a coachman goading the horses, who are perhaps a little reluctant on this frosty night, into the cold and out there into the darkness. This is how it begins. There's an unmistakable gallop rhythm there, isn't there? Da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. And you can feel at the beginning how it all gets started, the picking up of the momentum. You could cry the cries on the brass. You could almost imagine the whips being used and the horses in that repeated rhythm at the beginning. At first, though, it's, it's all pretty clearly E-flat major, a relatively bright sound, kind of the exhilaration of starting a long journey. And maybe you could imagine that Sibelius is wrapped up cozily in blankets inside this sleigh. But by the end there, that E-flat major is beginning to sound more like C minor so that it's getting a bit darker. And then the passage that follows, that suggestion of minor intensifies so that the mood becomes less cozy and warm, and the harmonies start getting weirder and more remote. You can imagine that gradually that sense of the winter night and the emptiness of the forest is beginning to encroach on the traveler as he sits in the sleigh. Thank you. 
You can definitely hear some shivers there, can't you, from the strings. It's getting colder, and I saw a lady in the front row put her coat on at that point, so obviously Sibelius's music is having the right effect. Now, that galloping rhythm continues hypnotically, but it's mostly a very hushed kind of sound, because, after all, the sound of horses' hooves on snow is a very different sound from the kind of sound we have of the horses' hooves on a metal road or on gravel. And then the sound becomes even stranger, because the strings start playing that galloping rhythm, sul ponticello, there's another interesting term for you. That means on the bridge. They play the strings with the bow right on the bridge, and it makes a straight kind of glassy, icy sound. To go with that, you'll hear we have the side drum played on the rim, which is, again, a very metallic kind of sound. And in the background are woodwind calls. And you might wonder at some stage what kind of calls these are. Sibelius often writes in his diaries about how woodwind calls are associated in his mind with particular kinds of birds. But these are clearly night birds, or maybe something a little bit stranger than that. They seem to float free from the galloping rhythm that continues in the strings. You can imagine that we have the momentum of the sleigh going forwards, while these forest cries suggest stillness and emptiness in the background. That's one of those remarkable passages in Sibelius that I find fascinating, where the music to me seems to have the extraordinary ability to suggest two kinds of movements at once. First of all, you've got that galloping sound, which really suggests that the sleigh is going forward and going forward and going forward. But those woodwind calls in the background, the chant-like figures, they don't seem to be moving forward at all, or at least not at the same kind of speed. There's a suggestion of two different kinds of, or rather, movement and maybe complete stasis going on at the same time. Um, Sibelius was able to develop that idea still further in his symphonies. Something else he developed still further in his symphonies that we're going to see a marvelous example of in a moment is transition, a remarkable transition from the night ride into the section dealing with the sunrise. And actually, I say section. One of the things that's so extraordinary about Sibelius, and particularly the latest Sibelius, is trying to say where one kind of music stops and another music starts. It all seems so seamless. If you listen to a work like the Seventh Symphony, for instance, which is in one movement, there are passages where you say, oh, yes, this is definitely a fast movement. This is a scherzo. We're moving very fast. Another passage you feel, no, actually, this is really slow music. But try and find the exact place 
at which the one kind of music stops and the other begins, and it's virtually impossible. Wagner, here's another Wagnerian reference, but Wagner once said that composition is the art of transition. Well, if so, that makes Sibelius one of the most artful and Wagnerian composers there is, because the way he handles transition is fascinating. We've got an example coming up now. We've still got the galloping figure going on, Sul Ponticello on the bridge, and now Tremolando, and it's joined by running woodwind figures, which are tracing the same outline as the galloping figures, but suggesting a different kind of movement. To me, this sounds as though it might be just the first hint of a glimmer of a new kind of light in the sky. Interesting reversal there. You've got the movement still going on in the cellos and those running figures in the woodwind. But now that slower chant figure, which the woodwind first presented, is played by the strings, by the violins and the violas all together, making that kind of massed string sound that we also heard at that climactic point in the Swan of Tuonella. Perhaps in a way it suggests the response of the traveler himself to these first glimmerings of light in the sky, the light that's been so long withheld, which does seem to be confirmed by what happens next in the piece, because the galloping movement, which has been getting fainter and fainter in the cellos, stops altogether. It's as though the driver's been told to rein in his horses for a moment, and that chant figure on the strings becomes really quite hymn-like at this moment. definitely hymn-like, and it sounds quite urgent, doesn't it? As though the traveller is imploring the sun to return. Actually, listening to it there, it reminded me strongly of the end of Ibsen's Ghosts. I don't know how many of you know that play, but there, the young man who's losing his sanity 
repeats the phrase over and over again, Mother, give me the Son, give me the Son. It's another reminder of how powerful and important the image of the Son is in a lot of Nordic art. And sure enough, in response to that impassioned prayer on the strings, there is the first hint of a kind of little flicker from the woodwind. Just a first tiny little faint tremor there. So uh, this is followed by kind of tentative sounds, cautious, shadowy sounds, and kind of images which suggest a memory of those night bird calls that we heard on the woodwind. Then begins what sounds like a kind of dance on the woodwind. It's a genuine brightening of the mood at this point, although you can feel the spirit lifting in response to this slowly returning light in the music. comes a really wonderful passage, I think one of my favorite moments in the whole piece. It's another kind of hymn this time on the horns, but a much warmer sound. If the hymn on the strings sounded urgent and imploring, this sounds much more like confidence, a song of praise perhaps, a song of warmth and acceptance spreading through the orchestra. And now the music returns for the first time to the key in which we began, E flat major. This is definitely a sense of light returning to the music.
Interesting that little change of harmony at the end when the strings shift up to a D flat. Just as the hymn is beginning to warm up and expand, as it were, it's as though something has suddenly has happened in the sky to change the spectator's feelings, as though some new aspect of light or some perhaps a bit of darkness returning. There's a sense of expectancy as we're poised on this new harmony, again, with tentative woodwind phrases, that sense of expectancy. What's going to happen next? expectancy just for a moment and then that hymn begins anew the sense of the light spreading through the sky and the sense of gratitude and warmth that the traveler is experiencing as he watches it first of all we can hear that dance figure again on the oboes this time with a triangle adding an extra touch of brightness very bright sound and there are figures in the strings repeated figures that suggest a kind of mounting excitement and then that wonderful horn hymn returns on full brass with what clearly sounds to me like kind of symbol of the dawn chorus on the woodwind in the background. It's an intensely emotional greeting to the returning sun after what you might say were the genuine psychological perils of a long winter night. I've often thought actually listening to that passage in the Evensong service in the Anglican Church where we have that prayer, O Lord defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. How much more intense a prayer like that must seem in far northern latitudes where the sun virtually vanishes for a large part of the year.
Another one of those surprise changes of harmony at the end. This is very typical of Sibelius because despite his almost religious involvement in this experience of the sun coming back, almost like God returning after a period of intense spiritual darkness, Sibelius was always aware of the strangeness of nature, and particularly, again, how strange nature can seem in the extreme far northern latitudes. Because what follows is an extraordinary passage, a little passage of bizarre light play, you can imagine, across the heavens, almost pointillistic use of the orchestra. This certainly sounds like that comment of Sibelius is about a sea of colors that shifted and flowed. Fascinating. You're going to, where are we harmonically as one chord drifts into the next? It's like staring at this sky and seeing extraordinary miracles of light and color happening in front of you. But then, just as mysteriously, the music returns back to the E-flat major of the hymn. The hymn reaches the final cadence we expected a few bars earlier. The dawn chorus returns. Yet even at the very end, there's a sense of strangeness and newness in the kind of sound Sibelius creates, because as the brass settle warmly in the home key of E-flat, there are little chords from the clarinets, timps, and pizzicato basses at the bottom getting quieter, fading, as the high E-flat chord in the strings gets louder and louder. And suddenly, this is all cut off, and you're just left with a pianissimo wind chord in the background. So even something as simple as cadencing in the home key, coming to rest in the home key with Sibelius can be an extraordinary new creative experience. Well, it's time we put all these pieces together and heard the complete Night Ride and Sunrise by Sibelius, a musical journey quite different from the static experience of the Swan of Tuonella, a musical journey, geographical journey, and a spiritual journey all at the same time. One that brings a sense of nature, a kind of sense of nature and God in nature that, as it were, puts the observer into perspective, just as Sibelius was to do very much in his last orchestral tone poem, Tapiola, even more devastatingly there. But here then are the BBC Philharmonic, led today by Ben Holland, conducted by Petri Sakkari, to perform Sibelius's Night Ride and Sunrise. <laughs>